Ready to proceed with the uh, second class on the subject of Abraham and the Covenant. Uh, yesterday we, uh, we were in the process of tracing the journey of Abraham out of Ur up to the uh, northernmost section of his itinerary through Haran. And in the twelfth chapter of Genesis, in the sixth verse, we read that he came through the, passed through the land unto a place of Sychem, S-I-C-H-E-M, which is the Shechem of the Bible, which is, which is mentioned in several places uh, and has some significance there. I believe uh, it was one of the cities of refuge, among other things, later on under, under Joshua, a capital city of the, some of the kings of Israel and of some renown in the, in the uh, Israelite structure. Uh, Shechem, as we see in this, uh, either in this place or some others, is located between the mountains of Ebal and uh, Gerizim. I believe it's spoken of here in the sixth verse. Uh, there was a plain of Moreh there, or more properly, and maybe we better leave this to Brother uh, Malay to comment on, where that word is, plain of Moreh there, is oak of Moreh. Uh, I, I don't know anything other than that. But that's what your, some of your margins or translators have rendered that. Uh, just, just some identifying remarks that Abraham came to Shechem. The, the significant thing here at Shechem is that he built an altar, and it is logical for us to assume, particularly in light of us sort of knowing uh, some of the future events of what Abraham did, that he offered a proper sacrifice uh, here, that, that there was a continuing uh, development of Abraham's faith, a, a significant showing that he was trained up in the ways of God, and that sacrifice was a uh, part of his life. Uh, he moves on from Shechem southward about 20 miles. We have a map here that uh, here is Shechem. Uh, perhaps a little bit blurred. You have you have a, a copy of that map, but here here we have Shechem, and here's Bethel right about 20 miles south, uh, mentioned in the 8th verse of this chapter. Uh, and it says there, and we think there's some little significance uh, in this account, that he pitched there, uh, came into a mountain on the east of Bethel. Now, that like so many things in the scripture, we might could have said, well, north or south or west would have been just as good as east. Uh, but the account says, uh, on the east of Bethel, uh, which means that he pitched on the east of uh, Bethel. He was, Bethel was actually to his west. Uh, and, and it also mentions that uh, Ai, I, I'm not sure that's the word, it calls it Hai here, H-A-I in the King James Version. That, that city or community is also known as Ai, Ai in uh, other places, and the meaning of these two places is somewhat significant. Uh, Bethel, which we see so often in the Hebrew setup, the word Beth meaning house, and El, one of the connotations of deity or God or the strength of the mighty ones, or something along this line, signifying house of God. And on the other hand, Ai, which I don't 
believe we have on this map, but it's very well adjacent to uh, Bethel, uh, over to the east somewhat. Uh, the meaning of that town is heap or ruin. You can see the opposites of these two cities. In other words, we have the option, or Abraham has the option at this time, of uh, selecting or entering into or residing at a place, meaning house of God, or he could select a place of heaps or ruins. So the entrance to God's house, as we know from other studies in other parts of the scripture, is always from the east or the rising of the sun. Uh, there is a significance here, is that the healing that God offers to mankind, uh, such as is mentioned in Malachi, I think, prominently, the uh, son of righteousness arising with healing in his wings, uh, and the uh, design of the temple in Ezekiel where the uh, Messiah, the prince, enters in from the east side, that side being reserved solely for him, uh, shows that this is significant in the scheme of God, uh, and that Abraham, perhaps coming into this community, and again building an altar here, shows that he affirms, at least in type, uh, that his intent and his desire was to enter into and to be a part of God's house. By setting up to the west of Ai, uh, he, in effect, rejected the ruinous offering of dwelling in the city of heaps. This was sort of like being returning to the Ur of the Chaldee. From uh, Bethel, because of uh, famine, uh, we read in the 10th verse of Genesis 12, uh, he and his uh, entourage move on down into the country of Egypt. Now we might ask the question here, was his going on into Egypt an indication that he did not believe God? You know, God had appeared to him at Shechem and said, this is the land that we're going to uh, give to you. So Abraham sort of proceeds on out of Shechem and comes down here into somewhere into the Egypt area. Uh, and it perhaps raises the question, uh, is he dissatisfied or... or uh, uh, dissuaded in any way that, that what God has promised him he is not going to fulfill? Uh, I, I think not in this, uh, to answer this question. Uh, it seems to be born of a certain degree of practicality. There was a famine, as we read in, in the 10th verse. Uh, and we know that in the organization and planning of God, not only for Abraham, but for Abraham's spiritual seed in particular, uh, it was necessary to arrange a degree of testing. And, of course, the account that we read of in Egypt uh, is merely one of the tests uh, are proving of Abraham. And uh, the fact that he came only a few short miles away I don't think indicates in any sense that he was disappointed with what he saw there and, and says, I'm looking for some better land or anything like this. Uh, in verses 11 to 20 of this 12th chapter, we would read, I'm not going to take the time to uh, read it in its detail, but we have there the incident involving his uh, involvement with the Egyptians. 
his fear that he might be killed if he was recognized as Sarah's husband. So he uh, portrays himself to the Egyptians as her brother and Sarah as, as his sister. Uh, how old was Sarah at this time? Well, we read that we know there's a 10-year age difference in the two. Uh, Abraham was 75 when he left Haran, so Sarah was at least 65. And so the time they spent coming to Shechem and Bethel and on down into Egypt probably, I would suggest, is insignificant. So we would suggest that she is still 65 years of age. And in the 14th verse of Genesis 12, uh, she is described as very fair. And I think all of us, we're not talking about fair skin in the sense of light complexion or anything, but, but she was a beautiful woman. Uh, and as we have already read in the 20th chapter, the 12th verse, that she was indeed the half-sister of Abraham, so his uh, deceit, I think we might call it here, is uh, certainly defined. Abraham was sort of taking a, a uh, easy way out, and I don't think any of us would, would say that, that Abraham was manifesting a, a robust faith in his declaration that Sarah uh, was his sister. But there are some interesting uh, things in the account of going down into Egypt. Uh, a question arises among some of the critics of the account that when she was taken into Pharaoh's house, why was she not immediately defiled? Uh, perhaps this would uh, be the practice in modern society should an event like this take place. Uh, but from some little historical background that we could uh, could get on this thing. Uh, we read that when a woman was brought into the harem of the eastern princes, she underwent for a considerable time certain purifications before she was brought into the king's presence. There was the king, this was sort of an honorable, uh, he was at least in an honorable position, and, and the fact of taking a large quantity or number of wives, uh, even in so taking, this was done on a very orderly and legitimate uh, and high-scale uh, arrangement. So it's very probable, I think, by means of explanation here, uh, that there was some uh, period of uh, uh, setting aside of any person, and Sarah in this instance, uh, before she uh, officially came uh, to the king's presence. And it was in this interim period that God plagued Pharaoh and his house with plagues. I think the New English Bible says with grave diseases. So there was a, a stirring in the house of Pharaoh by the hand of God saying in so many words, uh, we're not to touch this woman. So that Sarah was restored uh, before she could have been taken uh, to the bed of the Egyptian king. God again uh, working to preserve uh, a situation and at the same time correcting, instructing, or testing in the life of Abraham. There's nothing said in the account as we read it here of, of whether or not Abram had any remorse, whether he said, well, that was a foolish move for me to make and uh, show some regret. Uh, we do read of Pharaoh's uh, mind on the matter 
Uh, and we sort of feel that, that Abraham must have felt uh, that he did act uh, improperly here. Uh, he had failed in his scheme, and his scheme was one born of the flesh or born uh, of deceit or falsehood to a certain degree. And so Pharaoh asked him to leave. I think this is uh, made, made uh, plain by the wording. Uh, well, I don't have the word there, but uh, if, if you're probably ahead of me in the account there. Uh, but Pharaoh sent him forth, I believe, maybe the wording, uh, out of Egypt. Now, during the period of time he stayed here, and, and I don't have that uh, detail either. I'm, I'm only guessing if I say it was a month or whether if I say it was a year. But we do know that uh, upon his initial contact with Pharaoh, Pharaoh was very uh, impressed and he had presented uh, Abraham uh, with a great quantity of uh, livestock. I believe uh, uh, 16th verse tells us that. And maid servants, men servants, and what have you. So by finding favor ori originally with, with Pharaoh, uh, Abram uh, added to the uh, wealth of his uh, household that he had perhaps started. Uh, well, he may have left Ur. I think if we go back to Ur, he may have left there with more than just his four people. He had something, but in Haran, he seems to have added to it. And whether or not he, in passing through the land of Canaan, he added more, again, is somewhat speculative. But by this time, he uh, had acquired a considerable amount of wealth as measured in, in livestock and uh, servants. Uh, whether he obtained all of this as a result of his friendship with Pharaoh is again questionable. Uh, in my particular case, I doubt it. I think that probably there was a certain industry attached to Abraham uh, in which he uh, worked and plied himself and uh, acquired these things. Now moving to the 13th chapter of Genesis, we come to the account of Abraham's return out of Egypt back to the uh, Bethel area, which is uh, some few miles uh, north of Jerusalem. It's, the Jerusalem does not appear on, on uh, this map. Uh, and he came to Bethel where he had built an altar. Called upon the name of the Lord again in sacrifice, which, which shows or indicates uh, that Abram certainly, despite uh, a shortcoming or a lapse uh, here and there, uh, had not departed uh, from his intention to serve the Lord faithfully. Uh, certainly he would make his mistakes, but uh, what man of faith does not? It's, it's the continual uh, plying of the uh, faith that we claim to have uh, that determines uh, whether or not we are men of faith. So we are more inclined to emphasize his readiness to leave Ur, his continuing on after the death of his father, Terah, his attitudes that we have seen in building altars and sacrificing at both Shechem and at Bethel, uh, showed that he believed God, and we would emphasize these more than his lapse uh, in the land of uh, Egypt. Certainly Abraham, as the uh, 11th chapter of Hebrews tells us, believed God that he was or existed and that he was a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And I think we can assume that it was Abraham's intent to diligently seek him. 
Now Abraham had great substance. I don't know how the uh, uh, balance sheets or acquisition uh, items were parceled out. But as he had great substance, we read in verse 5 of the 13th uh, chapter that Lot also had great substance. Lot wasn't just a uh, person that tagged along and says, you know, I'll, I'll eat well as long as the rest of this group eat well, eats well too. So Lot also, which went with Abraham, had flocks and herds and tents. So it's very uh, safe to say that Lot had his own... Uh, uh, belongings, his own family uh, setup. Uh, it is very likely when we get get to the uh, priestly order that, that Abraham was probably the uh, head or father of this group at, uh, since the passing of Terah, and that Lot looked unto Abraham and probably in the structure uh, of the priesthood prior to uh, the establishment of the Mosaic priesthood resided in the elder of the family who probably at this time was Abraham, but this did not uh, preclude Lot from setting up what we call a family organization. Uh, I think it's probably a common mistake that people have made in times past to say that Abram and Lot were at each other's throat, that they had words or strife. Uh, the scriptures do not say that. It was strictly between their herdsmen. And so these two men, who were masters over a great number of servants, uh, met together to solve a problem that had been caused by uh, mutiny in the troops, so to speak. So uh, the strife did not exist between Abram and Lot, uh, but it existed between their herdmen. On page 30 and 31 of uh, the book that we referred to you, Abraham, Father of the Faithful, I'd like to read a couple of paragraphs that uh, highlight this uh, uh, incident with Abraham and Lot. It says, But Abraham and Lot, who had held together through adversity, were now in danger of breaking the bonds of brotherhood through their prosperity. The strife about pasturage, which their combined vast flocks and herds created, and which the competitive presence of Canaanite and Perizzite made keener, might well have set the two at loggerheads. But Abraham had learned in Egypt that there are other things in life more important than the getting and keeping of wealth. The mild, concessive spirit with which he took the initiative stands for all time as a matchless exemplification of the true spirit of Christ in action. Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. This is in the eighth verse of uh, Genesis 13. We be brethren. Here was the dominant factor which must guide and influence all relationships between Abraham and Lot. By comparison, nothing else mattered. Before this overruling bond of brotherhood, all else was unimportant. They were near of kin. They had traveled a thousand miles together. Together they had shared the hostility of a new land and the special dangers of Egypt. And were they now to squabble over something which only the blessing of God had brought? We be brethren. A thousand times since Abraham, and another thousand times since God revived Abraham's faith in these last days, men had become blind to this truth, 
and its deep eternal obligations. Many a wrangle about trivialities of mundane level and many a bickering about spiritual truth of massive unimportance would have been stillborn if only this simple wholesome truth had been written in larger capitals in home and ecclesia. It was, it always is, a question of having things in perspective. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. So Abraham's solution to this problem does stand out as a re remarkable uh, display of attitude and of drawing upon the spiritual reserve that I think we are safe in saying that he had built up uh, during these years uh, in service to his God. There's a lesson also to be learned in the action by Lot. There are four verbs. I think when we read an account, uh, and this is perhaps more true of the scriptures than it would be of some uh, profane writing, but the development of the action, of course, is shown in the verb. If, if we analyze uh, some paragraph or, or writing, and in uh, sequence, they are given that this is sort of the uh, action of Lot. Lot beheld. So th this was his first action. Lot chose. Lot journeyed, and Lot dwelled. And much the same can be said of us. I, I, I sort of related this to the uh, action of Eve in the garden when she uh, took of the apple. She saw that it was a fruit desired to be make one wise and to do these certain things which are exemplified in the lust of the flesh and the pride of life and, and the things that are native to the flesh. And here it was very... Uh, sort of hidden in these verbs with Job. First he beheld. He saw this luscious pasturage, if you will, and he made his decision. So just, we do in the same way. We, we look at something and we decide we want it. And we move or we journey in that direction. Sometimes this is not so much a physical thing as it is mental with us. But we move or adopt this practice or procedure. And then the dwelling is the abiding or the holding to this practice. So there's, a, I think, a good lesson uh, when we look at Lot. First he beheld, then he chose, then he journeyed, then he dwelled. So he was hooked in the community of uh, Sodom where we have a, a great deal of wickedness. Now we can sort of let our imaginations run wild and say, well, well, Lot made all sorts of excuses of I'm not going to be like those people and I'm going to live on the outskirts and let them stay on the other side of town and all sorts of things like this. But, but the facts of the matter are that Lot moved into an undesirable community that was going to have some effect upon him and his family and he adopted to some degree a dangerous posture uh, inadvisedly here. Every man is tempted, we read, when he is drawn away of his own lust. And I think we see that in this instance. And enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. 
There's also a type of going back to the weak and beggarly elements of the world, of going back to the fish, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic of Egypt. There's a spiritual warning that all that glitters is not gold. Better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. As we go into the uh, 14th verse of the 13th chapter of Genesis, this is probably the aspect of the promises uh, numerically as we were outlining them in the notes that you may be following. We call this the third promise. I think it would be better worded as the third phase of, of a gigantic promise to Abraham or a third mention of God's working with him. But this is the one that we memorize and quote most, I suppose, uh, and think upon quite often. Uh, it seems to have a little more uh, far-reaching flair to it or something. But Abraham was still in Canaan at this time. Uh, apparently, Lot had separated and gone uh, east, and Abraham had stayed somewhere over in the Bethel area on the uh, western side of the Jordan uh, River, and Lot had gone over into this uh, area where we see the present Dead Sea. I don't have much comment to say upon that. Uh, we're, we will get to the destruction of, of Sodom, and apparently, uh, I, I, some of you can set me straight, the Dead, Dead Sea may not have been there at this time, but as a result of the uh, destruction that, that was uh, heaped upon Sodom and Gomorrah, that maybe at that point the Dead Sea came into being. I don't know. Uh, but prior to the, uh, if we can establish a setting for God speaking to Abraham, and we're, we're talking of the words here in Genesis 4, 13, 14 to 16, uh, where he says, Lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Now we notice we have developmental features to this that have not been given before, particularly the immortality aspect, the for, to thy seed forever. And of course, Paul in Galatians makes this very clear, that he's not talking about any other kind of natural or, or uh, kind of seed, but to thy singular seed, which is Christ. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Uh, where was Abraham at this time? The commentators uh, vary uh, here. Some say at uh, Bethel. Others say at uh, Hebron, which would be down at the sort of southern tip of the Dead Sea and a little bit uh, west, I think. Uh, I would like to read a note. Some of you are probably familiar with this from the uh, book of Ezekiel's prophecy, uh, which I think is very interesting and perhaps, again, prophetic of what is going on here. Bethel, or Luz, according to the Palestine Exploration Society's map, is about 11 miles north of Jerusalem. It must, therefore, be the center 
of the holy portion devoted to the sons of Zadok. Now Bethel is inseparably associated with Jacob, one of the fathers whose personal experience and future destiny is revealed in Genesis. On his journey northward, fleeing from the face of his brother Esau, he rested at Luz, or Bethel, and sleeping there, received this promise, the land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. That's Genesis 28:13. At the same time, he was shown a remarkable vision of the ascending and descending element. Contemplating this vision, Jacob exclaimed, This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. The fact that to Jacob was promised an inheritance in the portion of land which is yet to be assigned to the sons of Zadok must have an important bearing upon the statement, this place is the house of God. And again, remember that Beth-el does mean house of God. Since the saints, Jacob being one of them, are to exercise priestly functions in the age to come, his words prophetically foreshadow the devotion of the territory upon which he rested for a night as the dwelling place or house of the Eloistic sons of Zadok, through whose functions at the altar the inhabitants of the new era obtain access into eternal life. Hence this place is the gate of heaven. After the resurrection there is little doubt that Jacob's lot will be at Bethel. He may supervise the local affairs of the northernmost portion of the Holy Square. Another remarkable coincidence is the promise to Abraham. This promise appears to have been given at Hebron. Now this is what Brother Sully feels, not Bethel, as generally supposed. A careful consideration of the 13th chapter of Genesis leads to this inference. In that chapter, Genesis 13, we are told that after coming out of Egypt, Abraham took up his residence at Bethel. Previously, on a former visit to Bethel, he had erected an altar there, and there he called upon the name of the Lord. Sometime after his return from Egypt, after Lot was separated from him, the promise of an inheritance in the land contained in verses 14 and 17 was given. After receiving the promise, see verse 18, Abraham removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. And here's his reasoning. In commemoration of the promise, the idea is strengthened when we remember that Hebron, by reason of the configuration of the country, is a much more suitable eminence from which to view a wide extent of country than Bethel. If at Hebron, excuse me, if at Hebron when the promise was given, we can understand why Abraham removed his tent and why he there built an altar as a memorial of promise. From Hebron he would be able to look north, south, east, and west upon the promised inheritance, and from this center he would be able to walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it with a lively hope of receiving it in due time according to the promise. In the age to come, Abraham will probably reside at Hebron, a fitting place from which to supervise the affairs of the Holy Oblation. His jurisdiction, probably extending over the whole of that area, may appertain more particularly to the middle portion of the square. So Brother Sully in his book uh, on Ezekiel's Temple assigns specific locations, uh, Bethel, north of Jerusalem to uh, Jacob, and uh, Hebron, 
south of Jerusalem uh, to Abraham, and he is suggesting that the uh, promise given here in, in Genesis 13 uh, was given at uh, Hebron as opposed to Bethel. Uh, I'm not so sure. I don't, I don't have an opinion that it was uh, at Hebron necessarily. Uh, from the reading of verse 18, where it says he removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. Uh, after hearing the details of the promise, uh, we know that he did move down there, and uh, he built another altar. Uh, there's another interesting thing, as I looked at these notes uh, last night, uh, that same uh, Jim Malay in his class had us look at that Isaiah 6, 13, uh, and the word in, in uh, I believe it's in the New English, was terebrinth, is that correct? I think that's a, a type of tree, and that same word is used in this instance. So it, again, I just sort of throw that out as uh, probably more confusion than anything else. The he, he removed his tent to this Hebron Mamre area, and it says in one of the uh, uh, notes or versions, by the terebrinth, which is, a, uh, I think, a type of tree. In, in quick review of, of what, uh, you know, when we're talking of the promise made to Abraham, we certainly don't want to minimize or pass over it uh, with any haste, but we would just like to say in passing from this, uh, these three verses, Genesis 13, 14 to 16, that the details of this promise we can see if we read and reflect upon them involve specific land areas because Abraham was probably on an elevated area and it's another thing we failed to mention was that this was in the daytime if he looks north, east, south, and west and is able to see because you know in a subsequent promise we're coming to Abraham where he's told to go out and count the stars which would be at nighttime. So here we are in the daytime and he is told, look around, and there is specific land that is involved in this promise. There is eternal possession of this land, which suggests immortality. It suggests resurrection. It suggests a consolidation of a number of doctrinal truths in order to reach or obtain that possession of the land. It uh, promises a seed as co-heir, which seed is very well defined in Galatians 3.16. And it also uh, infers, as we study more about the seed, that from that seed there is a multitudinous seed uh, of natural Israel and of spiritual Israel, which are intimately involved in the overall promises to Abraham as well. Moving on to the 14th of Genesis, we come this chapter we would call the Battle of the Kings. There were four kings from the east, and we're again going back over to the Babylon, Ur, Mesopotamia area. The other side of the flood, I think it's called in one, by one expression. Uh, there were four kings over there. One of them uh, was from Shinar, which we associate with Babylon. Another one from Elazar, which I don't know where that is. And then Kedileomar of Elam, which is modern-day Persia. That may be just off the map over there, off of Babylonia. Uh, and Tidal of nations. It doesn't even mention his country. It just says Tidal of nations. The word for nations there, incidentally, is Goyim again, G-O-Y-I-M, uh, which 
quite often is associated with Gentiles. But these four kings under the leadership of Keterleomer uh, made war with five kings over on the Canaan uh, land. And their names are given there too, uh, Bera, Bersha, Shinab, Shemeber, and then one whose name is not given, the king of Bela. Uh, some of your uh, researchers and historians and writers on, on these subjects uh, uh, go into volumes of comments upon these, the background of some of these kings, which I'm not. But here are what notes I do have on it. For 12 years, the Canaanitish kings had been in subjection to Ketileomer, and in the 13th year, they rebelled, bringing about an attack from Ketileomer and his allies. The route taken by the attacking invaders is given as Ashtaroth, Carnium, Ham, Sheva, Kiriathim, Mount Seir unto El Paran, in Mishpat, which is Kadesh, all the country of the Amalekites, and Hazian Tamar. The kings of Canaan came out to the Vale of Siddim to engage in battle. But the Ketileomer forces defeated them and took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and captured Lot and took him along with them. When word reached Abram, and he was down in Hebron now, which I, I'm sorry that... Well, we've got Hebron here on the map over here. Really, I think if you dotted it, it would be over here somewhere. But, uh, I have a couple of other maps that I photographed out, but I think they're so small that you can't... Uh, yeah, that's, that's just entirely too small. And this one is rather dark. Too dark. I think we're better off with this. For, this gives us some kind of a rough, uh, rough idea of where we are. Uh, Abram was down in, in Hebron, and when he got word that Lot, in effect, had been captured, kidnapped, or what have you, uh, and these uh, four eastern kings had made off with him and his family, and uh, so Abraham became a uh, very excited man under these circumstances, and he armed his servants and were given the quantity of them at this time. There were 318. Now, this is not to suggest that that's all the servants he had, because these, these would probably be more of the military age, uh, certain brackets, so he must have had younger ones and older ones, and he must have had uh, women, and he must have had children in, in the household at all. Uh, lived in the camp of Abraham, as it were. So, so we had 318 that were armed at this point, and they uh, set out in pursuit of the kings of the east here of Ketileomer's band, and it says he pursued them unto Dan. Now, Dan normally is in the uh, northern section. Uh, I think Damascus, which we have in Syria here, is one place mentioned on his return, and of course he comes down to Jerusalem on his return, but Abraham probably went from Hebron, well up into here somewhere, uh, in pursuit uh, of these uh, kings of, uh, under the leadership of Ketileomer. So he uh, attacked and smote the enemy unto Hobah, which is near Damascus. Again, that's not on our, our map. Uh, how much further that area I don't think is uh, I really don't know but I don't think it's important but the conclusion we draw 
is that he accomplished a complete overthrow of the enemy. For, for we read that he brought back all the goods, rescued Lot and his goods, also other people, including women. So the defeat that Abraham accomplished on these uh, invading kings uh, was total and complete. Now his mission is described in another place as the slaughter of Ketileomer and of the kings that were with him. So I don't think we need to uh, come to any kind of a, a moderate conclusion that, that they came together someplace and said, Let, let's talk this thing out and maybe we can patch up our differences. There was a complete overthrow and slaughter uh, of these uh, kings. So that, that is sort of the historical side of the thing, but we're, we were brought again into the life and, and faith of Abraham upon his return southward. He comes back from, we'll say, Damascus or, or from the northern parts there, uh, and he is met by the king of Sodom. Now, the king of Sodom was one of the five who, who had been overthrown. And uh, so he was, could very well have looked upon Abraham as, as his savior in this instance, or anybody that had come to his rescue, of course, was, was certainly a, a friend indeed. But he came out to Abram in the 14th chapter of Genesis and the 22nd to the 24th verse uh, give us the uh, answer that Abraham answered this uh, king. Uh, I should say previous to his answer there was a question or, or a proposal by the king of Sodom to Abraham to give me, that is the king of Sodom, give me the persons or people and take the goods there. So in other words, let's split up the booty, as it were. You take the, uh, all the goods and what have you and give me the people. So Abraham's answer in the 22nd to the 24th verse is this. Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou, thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich, save only that which the young men have eaten and the portion of the men which went with me. Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. It, this shows the integrity, and again, I think the faith of Abraham, that he wasn't certainly, as we would describe him, a, a bloodthirsty landlord that wanted to go out and conquer more territory and usurp it and have possession or anything. He was primarily concerned with justice or the liberation of, of Lot in this case. Uh, it happens that it accomplished more than the liberation of, of Lot. But we're given a little bit of an insight, I think, again, into the continuing development of his faith and of the uh, kind of person and man that Abraham was. Now, coincidental with the king of Sodom's greeting to Abram, another king, the king of Salem, also came forth to meet him, bringing bread and wine, apparently, in some priestly capacity. You know, here comes a man out to meet Abram uh, with bread and wine. The king's name is given to us here as Melchizedek, and it is said that he blessed Abram on this occasion. And Abram, uh, without much ado or, or questioning, or we don't have a great deal of elaboration of the uh, uh, things that took place, but it says simply that Abram gave tithes of all that he had. 
Now the introduction of uh, Melchizedek into God's scheme of things at this point is more than just interesting because this is one of the uh, highlights, I think, of the uh, account of these 12 or 15 chapters. and if we did not have the subsequent revelation, and particularly in the 110th Psalm and the 7th chapter of Hebrews, we would all still be wondering, and certainly more deficient than we are now, about this incident, or we would have dismissed it entirely as just another so-called king of Sodom or king of Gomorrah or Bela, king of such and such a territory. In other words, this would be a sort of a non-entity Uh, this sort of passed off in the historical record. Just another name, another meaningless incident, a microscopic bit of historical data that well could have been omitted from the record. Well, any who view the scriptures this way not only discredit the author, but they suffer intellectual and spiritual loss themselves. Well, we don't want to be of this class, and certainly there are many who would condense the scriptures to a general paraphrase of a few chapters at most, and indeed some religious philosophies have minimized the inspired account to a point where they allow every man to decide for himself just what he wants to believe and just what he wants to choose to reject. Now the reverse of this philosophy is what we would like to advocate. The scriptures as given to us provide only an outline or shadow of the real depth and wisdom of the total revelation. If we can see beyond the historical narrative, if we look for the practical lesson of reconciliation of man to God, of God's purpose in working out in a most ingenious way the possible salvation of a cursed mankind, of deity showing through names, through titles, numbers, colors, appointments, forbidden indulgences, through promises, through ratification and repetition of promises, then we will be availing ourselves of some of the fatness and richness of the revealed word that is designed to elaborate the greatness and beauty of the Creator and magnify our love and respect for Him. In the Melchizedek account, this teaching is manifest. His being king of Salem is no accident. His joint office of king-priest is not just a casual happening. Abraham's recognition and acknowledged submission to him is significant in light of the development of the seed of Abram, none of which existed at this time. You recall in the uh, seventh chapter of Hebrews where it says that Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek. Now where was Levi? If we go back to our chart again, 1878, we've got the birth of Terah, and and we find that Levi was one of the 12 sons on our chart, if you have it there in your papers, uh, that was well down a number of years from this incident of Abraham uh, and the battle of the king. So for Levi to pay tithes to Melchizedek certainly is not a literal event. It is a parallel event, much like that that we have of our sinning in the loins of Adam when we were not yet born. Here we are 4,000 or 6,000 years down the line, the stream of time from Adam. But each one of us were in the loins of Adam when he sinned and we reached forth in symbol 
uh, along with Adam and Eve and partook of that forbidden fruit and thereby sinned and offended the Creator. And so in a figure, when we can do that, certainly Levi, by the same token, can, through his grandfather or great-grandfather Abraham, offer or submit or pay tithes to one recognized as a greater, much greater than him. And we pick out Levi, of course, as one of the twelve sons of Jacob because he was the priestly tribe uh, that was established uh, in the development of the uh, law of Moses. There is a suggested teaching in Abram's aloofness or rejection of the king of Sodom as if to say that this representative city, Sodom, stood for waywardness and destruction as opposed to the peace and prosperity of the antitypical Salem. Sodom's history is mute testimony to God's attitude toward unrighteousness and disregard for him. On the other hand, there is a devoted acknowledgement on the part of Abram of God's appointed priest, both practically and symbolically. Practically in the sense that Abram was aware that God was closely operating in his life, that he had not only an obligation but a privilege in recognizing the authority and dependability of deity and communicating in a definite and prescribed manner with his people. Abram had received many assurances from deity up to this point, and he had responded favorably as to the building of the altars at Bethel, at Shechem, and Hebron will attest. Once again, he does sacrifice to deity in the Salem area. Now again, I'm sorry that that isn't on our map, but it's 11 miles south of the point of Bethel uh, there. And for the first time, through the appointed means of a priest. You know, the other times when he sacrificed and offered, there was no mention of the priest, and our suggestion is that Abraham officiated as head of the family uh, as priest in those instances. Uh, the record says nothing of Abram wanting proof that this was actually God's priest. He seems to have had some prior awareness or education along these lines. Through the blessing pronounced by Melchizedek upon Abram, there is both temporal and future implication. Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, the possessor, or another rendering of that says purchaser or redeemer, and I think that is an interesting, uh, you might want to make a note of that. Blessed, is, uh, this is uh, the same word as is used in Isaiah 65, 16 to 19. Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, or the purchaser or redeemer of heaven and earth. And certainly when we think upon Abraham, and we're not trying to subtract or diminish in any sense uh, the uh, saving efficacy or work of the Lord Jesus, but Abraham has purchased or has redeemed or has set the groundwork for salvation of mankind. If we eliminate Abraham... Uh, we eliminate so much of the groundwork as to destroy the picture as a whole. We're not saying, again, that we could do this without the work of Christ, who is to come and ratify and really put the solid proof to the Abrahamic covenant. 
But when, when we think of Abraham as a purchaser or a redeemer of heaven and earth, certainly we are ascribing to him a uh, proper uh, connotation and title. This blessing involved the forgiveness of sins, and it foreshadowed the ultimate redemption which God was to effect through Abraham. The elaboration of the Melchizedek feature of the total plan is next seen in Psalm 110 and the fourth verse. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We note that this psalm is prophetically addressed to Christ. The Lord, Yahweh, said unto my Lord, that's the first verse, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So God says to Christ, in simple paraphrasing, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Here is a promise to Christ. Thou art a priest. And I think again if we can paraphrase, thou art to be a priest. When we're thinking in terms of prophecy. David being 1,000 years before the birth of Christ. Or the time of the Psalms. Thou art a priest, or thou art to be a priest. God has sworn to this end. He has sworn. The order of Christ's priesthood is given here. It is that of Melchizedek. It is not Aaronic. It is not Levitical. It is not anything else. It is not that pre-Mosaic priesthood that Abraham occupied, uh, spoken of in Numbers 3.12, which consisted of the firstborn of the Israelitish family. So we have an established point of promise from God who cannot lie regarding the eternal priesthood of Christ. Now Hebrews 7 gives a review of the Melchizedek priesthood and a contrast of it with the Levitical to show its superiority. We are not going to comment a great deal on that, but the simple uh, fact, uh, as best we think we can explain it or put it at this point, is that to say that the uh, explanation or the account given in Hebrews 7 demonstrates uh, very vocally the superiority and the preeminence that this priesthood of Melchizedek has over the Levitical particularly, but we could throw in all the others that you want to and say over any other priesthood. But since in the total package of scripture that we have, we, we actually have Levitical and Melchizedek as the only two orders given to us in the Bible, so we sort of confine it to that. Now the descent problem should never be a problem with any student of the scriptures. This item of descent without father, without mother, and all that business uh, is not even going to bear our comment at this time. It should never uh, anybody who figures that Melchizedek didn't have a mother and a father uh, needs to get out their books and read them a little stronger. Perhaps the institution and perpetuation of the Melchizedek priesthood is more of a problem to us as students. The fact that the kingdom of Israel and its line of kings was suspended for a time until a successor should come who was worthy and genealogically acceptable causes us no problem. We've been reading and hearing here this week in Ezekiel 21, I will overturn, overturn, overturn it until he comes whose right it is. So that kingdom of Israel has been suspended. It does not exist today until a certain time that it will be restored. 
Now, none of us have any problem accepting that. Uh, why not the same approach to the suspension of the Melchizedek priesthood? Until the appointed priest will come, one who is worthy, one who can be a king priest, who is king of Salem, or, or city of peace, and take up the office. There was no problem under the Levitical order where a son passed on to his son, who passed on to his son, who passed on to his son, wicked or good, long as you were a son, you were the next eligible priest. But under the Melchizedek order, worthiness is the criteria. And since the man Melchizedek passed off the scene, there has been no worthy successor, but the Psalms leaves us no doubt as to the fact that Christ is a priest by God's swearing statement that thou art a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and that is his order, and he is to have that office. Uh, and Abraham acknowledged this. Abraham, a man of faith, walking uh, through the land and setting the groundwork, establishing the groundwork for his seed, singular Christ. As we move into the 15th chapter of Genesis, we'll take just a few minutes. We've got, got about five minutes left, I think. God continues in this chapter to give reassurance to Abram. In other words, a more uh, comprehensive development of the promise as a whole. We've labeled it the fourth promise or fourth section of the promise. The chapter is prefaced by after these things, which we've noticed before, and probably has reference to his rejection of the king of Sodom and his acceptance of the king of Salem. So after this incident in the life of Abraham, uh, he moves on to this uh, next scene. Now, there is a, a item also given here. It says, Fear not, Abram. Well, what, what would he have to be afraid of? Why would, why would it be spoken to Abram by the Almighty, don't have any fears? Well, it may have some reference, uh, as some commentators have suggested, to the king of Sodom. But I keep calling back to the point that Abram and his 318 servants went out and licked four nations that not only the king of Sodom but four other countries didn't have much luck with. So I, I can't associate this in my mind that, that God is saying to Abraham, Abraham, don't be afraid of Sodom, Gomorrah, and some of these other nations that, you, that are your bordering uh, people here. Because uh, we remember that, that Abram seemed to, not, not entirely, again, through his own uh, devices and power, but we know God was working with him, but he was capable of uh, military, militarily defeating uh, these people. So one, uh, I can, uh, one might draw the conclusion that Abram would have no fear of the king of Sodom. That would be the conclusion I would draw. But Abram's fears more likely, and we offer this merely as a suggestion, were born of concern for some, from some visible development of his seed. In other words, God has been promising, and we're now into the fourth stage of this thing, and Abraham is saying, or ready to say in effect, uh, Lord, there's been a lot said about this thing, but uh, somehow uh, I see the land stretched out here and I see some of these other things, but the vital part of this thing is the seed, the perpetuation. We can't have nations, we can't have kings, 
we can't have a resultant kingdom and immortality in the land without some kind of progeny here. And uh, I, I fail to see it at this point. And we wonder if, if, if at this point in Genesis 15:1 that Abraham's fears were not somewhat born of concern that God was a little bit slow in acting in this uh, particular area. The second verse, according to one commentator, should be read with a parenthesis. And sort of parenthetically, instead of saying, and Abram said, for Abram had said. So if you insert that reading into that second verse, for Abram had said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. So God, as an answer to that fear, says, Abram, have no fear, or fear not, in the first verse. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. You are doing business with one who is capable of fulfilling his word. So have patience. Uh, whatever I promised, I will perform. I'll keep giving you reassurances. You keep doing your part. You can rest assured that I'll keep doing my part. So uh, we come to the part here of uh, a little bit of discussion perhaps on the uh, steward of Abram's house who was this Eliezer of, Disma of Damascus. Uh, again, from what research I can do on it, uh, I have this. He was either the heir or Abram was considering making him.